0: Welcome back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. We are gathered again at downtown Uncorked in downtown Bryan for another live recording with a special guest. Um, Greg is with me as always, nodding Hist- his head, which Hist- the audience can't see. Uh,
1: historic, we're in historic downtown <laughs> Bryan. <laughs> downtown
0: Bryan, as you remind me. And uh, thanks as always to the Bush School for sponsoring. Today we have a wonderful guest with us, Professor Elizabeth Cobbs. And she is going to talk about a new documentary she has coming out, um, Cyber Work in the American Dream. And I am going to be serving on a panel with her, actually, at the premiere in mid-April. And that'll be on April 15th at 6 p.m. over at the Bush Library. Uh, That's li- not the library. No, it's, at it's the a Presidential Conference presidential Center. Conference center. the Hagler Room, I believe. Hagler so, Auditorium. Hagler Auditorium. So if you'd like to join us, we'll be there at 6. We'll be watching the movie. And... Uh, then uh, Elizabeth Cobbs and I and a few other panelist members will be discussing the documentary. So if this conversation is interesting to you, we won't cover all the specifics of the documentary, so you should come and join us out on April 15th.
1: No spoiler alerts. No
2: spoiler
0: alerts. Well, we'll leave leave that up to...
1: We'll leave that up to to Professor Cobbs. And we should say this is the first time that our special guest has been a professor in another department, in another college at Texas A&M.
0: So now not only are we mass communicating, we are mass communicating across the university.
1: In an interdisciplinary way.
0: Ooh, interdisciplinary. Oh, my God. I bet professor. that's a word that you like. I the first. No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: professor Cobbs is professor of history.
0: Thanks for joining us. Is it all right if I call you, Lisa? Yes,
3: you, you may. I always say call me Elizabeth Cobbs because I'm an author, and so you're always trying to get that old name recognition out. But uh, no,
0: please, Justin, call me Lisa. All right. We're so, friends. Uh, aw, that's great. So, thanks for being here with us today. Uh, I'm really excited to get to see the documentary. I watched the trailer, and this has become a a very fascinating topic to me for my own research. But before we get there, let's give the listeners a little bit of background information on you. So, what brings you, uh, what's your, how do you see yourself as a historian and your path towards where you are now? Just a little bit of background.
3: Yeah, well, you know, I think... um, History is the thing that everybody thinks is boring until they hit thirty, about usually, and then you realize that pretty much everything is this story, and it has this backstory that's really fascinating that you know makes life interesting. And I I think of myself as a full service historian, by the way, um, which means that um, you know people like history in different ways. Some people you know, hate fiction. They're like, I just want to know the facts. I mean, those are like those serious people, right? And so, you know, I write books as most professional historians do for, for those people. Who want to, You know, you don't make up a cloud in the sky. Everything has to be documented and um, you interpret it. You try to understand why something happened, but it's all fact. But then there are those other people, which is how I was as a kid, which is, you know, I want to read uh, History by the Pool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I loved historical fiction. That's how I, I came to history. So I write novels too. Um, uh, My last nonfiction book, for example, for the straight-up history people, uh, was called *The Hello Girls: America's First Women Soldiers*, and it was all about, literally, you know, the women who served in World War One, who braved the bombs, who braved the submarines, who answered 26 million phone calls for the U.S. Army, um, connecting generals with guys in the trenches because that's how (laughs) phones worked back then. So that's straight-up history, but then my next book uh, coming out is a novel, a fictionalized account of Harriet Tubman's Civil War service. Now, by the way, little did I understand I'd be writing about two groups of women, military veterans, who had to fight for decades for their pensions. But that's turned out to be the case, so that was true in World War I. It was also true of Harriet Tubman, who got a military pension after 30 years of petitioning. Um, because she, she served as a soldier mm-hmm. in World War, and me, the Civil War. But anyway, but now we're talking about a documentary because some people don't want to read by the pool and they don't want to read the serious stuff, they just want to watch TV. So, I'm like all over that.
0: Sounds like you're trying to appeal to us animals.
3: Oh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you said that, I, don't know. I don't know, I just think that um, it's, you know, there's so many different ways that we learn, right? Mm-hmm. And one thing you can do with documentaries that you just you can't do otherwise is to show the pictures, you know, to hear the words, to hear the songs. To, in this case, we're talking about artificial intelligence, and we started with Frankenstein, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, he, he gets the girl, and the girl shrieks, and, you know, I mean, that's just fun stuff. So it's another way of engaging Americans in history and making it accessible to everybody.
0: And you're taking another approach today with us on our Bush School and Cork podcast for people that maybe don't read or don't watch tv maybe they will uh, have their earbuds in and listen to us today so they're getting another mode
3: absolutely right <laughs> the reason why podcasts have become so important i mean more people listen to podcasts than, than watch
1: television anymore
0: i hope our numbers show that
1: that would be nice <laughs> <Good luck.
0: laughs> Thank you. so what brought you uh, you know the background of uh, different groups of women fighting for their pensions and serving their country is a little bit different than artificial intelligence. So how did you make this transition from uh, to think about artificial intelligence and work and automation? Those things seem a little disparate in my mind. Really? <laughs> You're shocked. <laughs> I'm I can tell. shocked.
3: I am shocked. Um, well, I think it's because I'm... One of the things I teach here at, at AM, which I really love, it's like one of my very favorite classes, is world history. And it's like, you know, 1492 to the present. And I love it because you get to make these big connections between all kinds of things and explain really big stuff. And one of the really big things is, you know, how can we have this podcast? You know, how did after thousands of years of modern, anatomically modern human beings hanging around? You know, plowing stuff. Did we suddenly, 300 years ago? Oh, oh gosh! You know, I could have had a bottle of Pellegrino here, which is what I'm having instead of wine. Uh, <laughs> a At least
1: while the podcast is going on.
3: Yes, Greg is the responsible adult. <laughs> we need one in the
0: room. We need one.
3: <laughs> so, I mean, I just think it's really interesting, and I always love to talk about why does the Industrial Revolution begin, when it does, and. Why does it become and you know, where it does, and why does it spread so rapidly to the United States and doesn't to most other post-colonial countries, for example? The United States is a the first post-colonial country, but. It takes rapid root in some places and not in others. And and so so in that sense it's a part of my kind of full service historian, you know, persona here. It's it is different. And in fact actually those I mentioned two books in kind of women's history, but that's actually new for me too. My previously my specialty has always been US foreign relations. But that gives me an entree into all things related to war. (laughs) So Women in World War One, women in the Civil War, d- does relate in a general way to my specialty.
0: We're going to be able to speak both Greg and I's language. Greg is the foreign policy expert, and I am an aspiring artificial intelligence expert. So we'll be able to speak both of our languages. Nice. Yeah. So the uh, this documentary is about uh, artificial intelligence. It's about how that's going to affect work. And then there's this bit, too, uh, in, the, in the title. It's mentioning the American dream. So tell me what you mean by the American dream and... It's potential relationship with these technological advances.
3: Well, you know, it's like all titles. They're like a series of compromises with producers (laughs) or editors, and you're like, well, it could be this, it could be that. But we we put on, we started with sort of cyber work because we were trying to get at, um, well, actually because working, because Tomorrowland was our other thought, but Disney has everything copyrighted. (sighs) Mm. You cannot use Tomorrowland, so pardon me for using that word now. But um, so cyber work was our first word, and then you know the American dream is related because for two reasons. One is, what's going to happen to the American dream? You know, um, the robots take over. If two thirds of jobs go away, what's going to happen? What's happening right now? How how do people feel about their prospects as Americans? That's one meaning of the title. But the other meaning of the title is that technology has always been the American dream. You know. Mm. The American, this is where the history comes in, why does the, you know, why does industrialization take such fast root here? And it's because about everything American. It's about the Declaration of Independence. It goes right back to the founding. It
0: might be useful to talk about some of these terms because I've been doing, as I mentioned, some research on artificial intelligence, and people seem to have, like, both in the literature and in popular discussion, people are, like, on extreme ends of one, what is artificial intelligence, and two, what are the the range of potential possibilities that it has. So you have everything from, you know, the term is Luddites, so people who think that all technology is bad, it's going to ruin everything, it's bad for the worker, it's bad for society, and then you have these kind of utop- techno-utopians who think that, you know, uh, artificial intelligence and advances in technology are going to solve everything. We're just going to realize finally this theory of a leisure class we're gonna sit around and twiddle our thumbs and smile and talk to one another and do podcasts? Do podcasts all, all the time. Yeah. Right. Podcast okay. was the example I used in class today of what type of artistic expression we might end up with. That there's no other work to do.
1: And I think that the, it'll take the robots at least a generation to be able to do their own podcasts. <laughs> so the humans, the <laughs> well, humans will, well,
3: we will continue. Listen. Will robots listen, or will we be interested in what they have to
0: say? That's interesting. And there's actually already a uh, an artificial intelligent robot host of some uh, news programming, where they've just replaced the... Uh,
1: the newsreader. The news,
0: yeah. I saw this on a, on a documentary News covering robots in, I believe, Japan. Uh-huh. So they're, they're coming quickly. So, you know, how do you... Uh, before we get into some of the details, maybe, of how these different mechanisms might work and why we should be worried about mass job loss or some evidence for why we shouldn't, How do you, where do you find yourself on this scale? I kind of moved everywhere from being a... Uh, scared of these things and thinking you know the apocalypse is coming and we're there's not going to be any jobs left for humans to all the other way on the other extreme which is this leisure class idea which is we're all just going to hang out and talk and engage in artistic expression and you know how do you find what, what how do you view after doing your research and the people you talked to for the work you did in the documentary where have you found yourself kind of on this broad continuum of luddite of hating all the technology to a technolo- technologist, you know, utopian.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I just sound just totally like an academic by saying I'm somewhere in the middle, uh, on, the one end, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, yeah, yeah. right, as we love to say. Um, well, I, you know, I was like yourself, I mean, I think initially very concerned, you know, you hear about words like singularity, which is the, the idea that at some point artificial intelligence will become so advanced that that's the moment. That will lose control of it, and the world will slip away. And you know, we'll be finding ourselves talking to robots. And you know, I mean, I think that that there is a dystopian vision that you know, I, as a good researcher, I needed to take seriously. So that was why it was so interesting in this documentary. We talked with twenty Americans who know a lot about the subject. From Andrew Eng, who's one of the chief AI people in the world, um, had been head of AI at Stanford, head of Baidu for in China. Um, people like Daniela Roos, who's head of AI and robotics at MIT. Um, you know, people who really know this stuff. Um, people who are entre- entrepreneurs in tech. Mark Cuban and um, Jerry, Jerry Kaplan and a lot of tech entrepreneurs. And so it's very interesting to ask these people, okay, how worried are you? Let's, really <laughs> Let's be honest here. How bad is it? And it's just very interesting when you hear people in different parts of the country for very different reasons saying similar things. I mean, that's what researchers always do, right? We're we're looking for patterns and evidence. And we're looking, we're trying to see what's the bias of a person giving evidence or not giving evidence. And we talked to Thomas Friedman. We talked to Gary Kasparov, who uh, lost his job as the world chess champion when he was defeated by Deep Blue Computer. And somebody like that really is like, oh, that's like a, it's what you said. It wasn't just that I lost to a computer. It was the first time I lost, period. That's <laughs> so, a
0: really I know. interesting point. Then, so, then he
1: lost to Putin.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know he's, Putin, yeah he's
3: kind of upset about that. Okay. Yeah, so I'm just saying for some people, I mean, they have reasons to really be worried. And, and uh, they actually are less worried than I thought they were going to be. So, and then the other part is, I always call this my hell in a hand basket theory of history. All right. It applies to many topics which is that humans always say, oh my God, we're going to hell in a handbasket. This next generation, they are going to hell in a handbasket. And I'm like, you know, they've said that every 20 years in the past 300. If that were true, we'd be in hell in a handbasket right now. So I think I'm a, as a historian especially, that really grounds me.
0: Yeah, the historical argument's the one that uh, kind of grounded me a little bit as I think about this, because... Uh, as you so, there's some interesting work on like task automation, and then you mentioned singularity, and there's a lot on technological evolution that talks about how a lot of technological progress is exponential, and it continues to be exponential in terms of capacity and uh, price per capacity as well. And so when I was like first exposed to these things, I was like, oh crap! Like you can see the little exponential graph going whoop, and just like off into crazy land, right? And then you like look at, to your point, looking at the Industrial Revolution in the past 300 years, there there have been a number of technological advancements that have automated whole industries, not overnight, but in a very, very short amount of time. And here we are, 2019, we've gone through, depending on who you ask, three or four waves of major technological advancement in automation. And look, well, some people have a hard time finding jobs, and that's not good, um, but... Unemployment's relatively low in the U.S. despite uh, all these technological advances. So what seems to happen is, it's this kind of creative destruction element that we talk about with capitalism, right? That is one industry is destroyed, it op- it, more resources are still developed through the technological advancements, there's more accumulation of resources, and then that uh, leads to new industries that we couldn't have expected before, or growth in other industries that haven't been automated. And so this trend of lots of technological advancement, lots of progress, and yet here we all are, all these hypotheses that we're going to sit around and be the leisure class, um, just none of that came true. And also this idea that the Luddites had that now all jobs are going to go away, neither of these things have been true. So the historical precedent kind of leaves us with um, maybe it won't be so bad.
3: Yeah, and you know, I mean, no, just today I was working on something, and I, uh, for a variety of reasons, I pulled out Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, who had this very conversation. It wasn't in a podcast; it was in a series of very vitriolic pamphlets. as close. They didn't like each other.
1: No,
0: they did. They, yeah, they, they had different views about yeah, that. I,
1: I knew that. Though, I knew that before the before, before the play. Musical? Yeah, before oh my the gosh. musical.
3: Uh, you are ahead of the man. Ahead of his time. Yeah, ahead of his times. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, you might say Jefferson was a lead-eyed. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. Hamilton was a high-tech guy. Um, Jefferson argued: listen, you know, thank God we don't have manufacturers. Let the Europeans dirty their hands with that. He really says this all in his notes on the state of Virginia, where he basically says: you know, what we really want to be is we have a lot of land, let's all be farmers, that's the more virtuous you know, non-corrupt thing to do. Every man is independent. By the way, he said nothing about the slaves who was, were working on yeah, his farm. Yeah. But, um, but he d- he was,
1: wasn't dirtying his hands on the no, farm. No,
3: not ever, really, ever. Um, except maybe with pencil dust. And yeah. That. yeah, it can yeah. be troublesome. Um, but, yeah, so he had this sort of Luddite idea that machinery, and, and in fact, he said, let it never be the case that we see any of their citizens sitting at a workbench. Yeah. By the way, he did have a nail manufacturing thing on his plantation, and some people were sitting at the workbench just to let you know. But anyway, but that they
0: probably weren't other white men. No, they were
3: not. Um, sure. So.
0: What a so, hypocrite! Okay. I just, I'm just,
1: I just dislike Jefferson to the core.
0: Well, you know, so you so have some beautiful prose. A, and you yeah, have, but all
1: run through committee. And what did he do while the committee was improving the Declaration of Independence? Sat in the corner and sulked
0: <laughs>
1: Like a baby.
0: <laughs> From yeah, yeah. I know,
3: it's hard on Jefferson. You know, I think every party needs a hero. And so for the Democrats, one reason why we all adore Jefferson is because he became the hero of the Democratic Party. He became the, the foremost president of that party. And ah, anyway, well, that's a long, that's another podcast. Yeah. Right. But, um... <coughs> Whereas Hamilton was saying something very different. It was so interesting to read this today, because he was talking about, hey, look at those British. We could have what they have. They have mills that's been cotton thread. And that's created a lot of wealth. And it's created employment for women and children who get to work in the factories. Now, by the way, that sounds really bad to our modern ears. Until you remember that he was raised by a single mother and had to go to work as a child. So maybe from, from his point of view, that wasn't such a bad deal. Um, But it was interesting, you know, so he was saying, you know, we need to plan, we need to encourage manufacturing. So that debate about whether we're all going to end up in the leisure class or whether, you know, we're all going to end up as slaves of the robots is something that people have, you know, they've been talking about since the start of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, you see it in the first um, science fiction, Mary Shelley, Frankenstein. I mean, that's AI. Mm -hmm.
1: So what what is AI? How would you define it? How would you define artificial intelligence?
3: Well, okay. I can go. I think Justin might be ready, uh, ammunition drier than mine, but, well, artificial intelligence is essentially, it. we call it the next, or in a way, the fourth industrial revolution. The first industrial revolution is driven by steam, and yes, you get the whole history in 56 minutes if you come to see the movie, either on PBS or at, at the Bush School. Um, check your local listings. Check your local. <laughs> Better yet, come on April 15th. It'll yep. be a party. That'll be more fun. But anyway, um, the first industrial revolution is steam, the second is electricity, the third is the digital computer revolution, and the fourth is really AI. So we're just at the start of this, in a way, fourth industrial revolution, um, which is falling pretty hard on the he- heels of just the third. So um, it's essentially where Computers in the past, you would have to give a computer a very specific set of instructions for everything. And if you missed a tick, it would go, you know, crash, boom, nowhere, no go, you know, go back home, no pass go, etc. So, straight to jail. So, one thing that artificial intelligence does, and where it separates from traditional computers, is the ability to give um, a soft, create software, which is what it is, it's software, where the software is given a goal by the programmer, you know, this is the effect you need to achieve. Land an airplane. Um, And before that, you say, here's all the data on how airplanes are landed. You know, millions and millions of examples of airplanes landing. Now you figure out, Mr. Computer, Mrs. Computer, Ms. Computer, you know, how you get from this data I've just given you. Data, we call it big data, because it's bigger than any human brain could ever have. Uh, As they say, you can't write fast enough, small enough, long enough to get all that data into one human brain, but the computer can't uh, because servers have gotten so big and memory has gotten so large that now computers can, in a way, write their own instructions. But it's always for what uh, scientists call specific intelligences. It's not what we're always worried about, which is general intelligence. That's what we humans have. That's what a baby of two has, is general intelligence. And a computer is pretty
0: dog on dog yeah I would just echo some of that so um, there's no one tool that's artificial intelligence Um, and as Lisa mentions uh, those in the AI community usually uh, distinguish across two different types which is the weak or narrow AI and this is training an artificial intelligence to be good at some specific task like identifying cats on the internet or something and then That's useful. It was very That's useful. Fun. Yeah, That's really a lot fun. We spent a lot of time doing that. I'm
3: glad they set that goal.
0: <laughs> and then the other is what's called either strong by some folks or general intelligence. And this is the idea to learn across different types of contexts and different types of domains rather than just one, like learning how to play chess. So uh, the AI that beat uh, Gary uh, Kasparov was a narrow AI. It got really good at maximizing one goal in a clearly like defined decision space, which is chess.
1: With Same with thing. very f- uh, finite and circumscribed rules.
0: Exactly, and these these systems, without going into too much uh, detail, learn in different ways. But in general, it's statistics based reasoning. There's some sort of expert coding, which is Sometimes uh, what variables might be important. This is kind of at the high level, structural level. And then there's kind of churning through all the correlations, churning through all the data to find patterns, just in similar ways that humans would, you know, you would learn how to play a sport, for example, or learn how to play chess. You have repeated examples of some decision space, some task space. And overall, over time, you learn to be good at it. And in some real meaningful way so
1: does the computer know the failures and the successes or is that part of the programmer's job to say when the plane crashes that's a failure don't do that or does the does is is that the artificial part of the intelligence that that eventually the computer program doesn't have to be told what the right result is but finds out what the right result is
0: so there's two main streams that people talk about there's what's called supervised learning models and unsupervised learning models and these supervised learning models the the computer programmers are a little are much more explicit there this is this is what you're looking for these are the variables roughly now go and figure out how strong all these variables like,
1: are. like how to win a chess game
0: yes Then there's, um, loosely, then there's these unsupervised models where it's, hey, we're going to show you um, uh, like a million pictures. And we're not going to identify the cat in them. We're going to tell you, hey, in half of these there's a cat. The other half there's not a cat. You go figure out which parts are important. The other thing that the, the systems do is be given a goal without anything other information about it. So, um, you might say, like, some of the other classic examples are playing, like, Atari games. Greg, you might remember Atari. I am old. Italian
1: yeah, games. I am old. It's
0: a good running joke. <laughs> but you, you might uh, think of an Atari or, like, an original Nintendo, where you, your score, every time you jumped on a turtle or got a point, increased. And so, one of the things that they are able to do across some games now is tell the computer, hey, your goal is to get more points. I'm not telling you anything else about that goal, but you get all those coins and points as possible. And then the the software, the learning algorithm learns all the parameters that helps them maximize that, that goal.
1: Having having inputted hundreds and thousands and millions of Atari games.
0: Yeah, and sometimes it sometimes it learns from what other uh, like like with the chess games, right? So sometimes it learns by looking at other games that chess players have played like right, humans. Right. And then what some of the advances now uh, that they can do is have it play against itself. And so it'll play and get it's the best mode, and then it'll start changing some random variations to play against itself. And then it iterates and improves against itself.
3: One of the interesting things that uh, Gary Kasparov pointed out is that you know if it's just human versus the machine, the machine will win every time at mm-hmm. chess. But if it's a human and a machine, they can always beat the machine, and it, it's because of oh. the additional things that the humans. So now a lot wow. of chess is played with, you know, two humans and two machines oh, wow. versus each other. Because I mean, this is the nature of way you know what we would call labor-saving devices. I mean, that's what industrialization has always been about, which is how to take the stuff I don't really want to do, and it's just a hassle, and let me get rid of that part so that what makes me human is the thing I get to focus on. And so that's, I think, one of the things I took away from making the film was what it really challenges us to do is to figure out what is that thing? You know, what is that interesting essence that we humans bring to things? Um, You know, it's the old idea of it's, you know, we don't feel threatened because cars go faster than we do. I cannot run as fast as a car. Am I threatened by the car? No. I'm so excited that it goes faster than I do. So with artificial intelligence, a lot of it is, yes, you know, it, it can figure out these things, and that's a great explanation, uh, Justin, for the, you know, how it sets up. But then you might think, well, then there's nothing left for us to do, and that actually turns out not to be true.
0: Yeah, which is, um, so, and I want to get to another piece of this, but I think this is a, a really crucial part, is that there, there remain lots of things about certain tasks, as is how I think about them in my research, <laughs> That humans just there are some things humans just do much better than machines, and there are some things humans do much poorly. So part of the decision making class that I am teaching this semester is trying to find all is in part looking at all the ways and all the situations in which we know humans perform poorly. For example, under uh, under conditions of uncertainty, which is what behavioral economics and Daniel Kahneman have given us, and then looking at the types of situations where where AI might thrive and these are in general tasks that are more routine that have less uncertainty associated with them that have clearly defined spaces they do much poorly in open ended areas much more poorly and uh, much more po- poorly in like generating new hypotheses about right. things they're not so good from this creativity major actually yeah. very very poor and so this does kind of raise a question of if tasks are going to be automated, and this is the question that I ask in, in my research for governance, which tasks should we automate, which tasks should we let the artificial intelligence play and do things and try to improve government, and then which tasks should we say, no, 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 these really belong in human affairs because it has to do with overall creativity, it has to do with human care, it has to do with helping professions where people really uh, benefit from that kind of human human connection.
1: So Lisa without without spoiling the uh, the documentary where what areas of work do the do the people who you talk to see as kind of being the first ones that were maybe already seeing artificial intelligence change what what humans do or or the kinds of jobs that humans have
3: Well Mark Cuban said if you're on a phone your job's gone. Yeah. So um <laughs> that's tough. Yeah, a lot of people on the phone, um, and of course we know cars, uh, automobile right. automation, uh, driverless cars, which are going to save a lot of lives. You know, right. because we're all idiots. <laughs>
2: right. I'm thinking
3: yeah. about twelve things when I make a left turn, and they're not all the left turn. So um, that's even
0: among the sober people who get by. And that's you
3: know, so the people who, right. yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, this, I mean, this goes back to what Justin was just saying. If a machine does something better, probably we ought to let a machine do it. Another expert in the show, Andrew McAfee, who's written wonderful books on this subject, he's at MIT also, and he said, when it comes to, um, you know, things like medical decisions, like there are decades worth of algorithms that show that, you know, that the algorithm will will make a better decision than you will, or than the doctor will. And so, for heaven's sake, take the algorithm, because, you know, God, I want to live. I want my children to live. I. I don't want somebody to be have a bad day and make a bad decision or you know guess wrong. You know if you can guess if you can make a decision based on 10 million examples rather than the 10 years experience that a doctor has had with 500 cases. Well, you know I want to talk to the doctor. You know I want to have that human being there for me. But um, if a robot can do the surgery better and more likely ensure my survival or the survival of my child, well. There's no, there's no question which I'm going
0: to take. This is an interesting example of trying to think about what the role is, even when even when a machine is better. What role a human still plays? So in the news, a couple of, uh, of weeks ago, there was this article where a it was talking about how a doctor via Skype on a little tablet on a little you know robot yeah. rolled up to a patient and said, "Hey, by the way, you're going to die, right?" And so, you know, use some regular technologies and AI technology, but this is a modern technology. It's pretty easy to Skype in from halfway across the world as you're a doctor. And surprise, surprise, the family didn't like that. Yeah. Right? And so this one wonders This asks questions. So, to your question, too, there's actually a decent amount of research on what types of professions, based on what types of tasks, make up those professions of which ones that are likely to be automated. So Lisa uh, mentioned a couple of these. Others include um, food service and food prep is one. Um, another is uh, like fraud detection and another is uh, construction work and you think about advances in 3D printing. Another is um, let's construction
1: construction work.
0: Yeah, construction work. Yep, As different kind of Tasks just are done by robots rather than by construction
3: workers. Of course, that would depend on what kind of house you want, wouldn't yep. it? And what type you of know, so if, yeah. you're, if you're looking at mass housing, all identical houses. I mean, they say that the main thing is that anything that's routine and repetitive—that's what can be automated. Mo- most routine, repetitive tasks. So, so but anything that involves like I didn't expect that to happen. Right. That's where humans come back into the
1: So, thinking. so there are many fewer. Humans working on the assembly line to make a car. Now we know that, right? Exactly.
3: Yeah. And you know, by the way, that precedent goes back to you know Cyrus McCormick and the, and right. the mechanical reaper. That's why know? the
1: Luddites destroyed the machines yeah, because they I thought guess, because, you you because know, they were losing jobs.
3: You know, but someone once said they were saying that this was in China, and, you know, they showed um, people with wheelbarrows, you know, and they, and they were being replaced by steam you know, steam-driven um, tractors, and like, well, isn't that going to get rid of people's jobs? Yeah, well, actually, if your goal was to provide jobs, just give everybody a teaspoon, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's, you can move Earth that way too, but is that really so, what we want to do?
1: So what are the historical... You, you, we're in the fourth of, the, of these technological revolutions that, that recreate work. What were the social and political consequences of the other three that we can learn from? Were, did they disrupt the politics? I, I, I would assume, right, that, that politics was quite disrupted. Social life was disrupted by the move from from the countryside to the city. I mean, that, that's the Industrial Revolution, right? Yeah, so. So, so uh, are we going to see those kinds of disruptions?
3: Yeah, I think we have. I think we are. I mean, mm-hmm. I think our politics today are roiled partly by, you know, those anxieties and that feeling of, maybe some people are going to end up with all the chips and other people are going to starve. And you know, those are legitimate worries. Hmm. Um,
1: Did we know, have the, the same debates about inequality over these uh, over well, the previous ones?
3: In, in a way, I go back to Jefferson and Hamilton. Yeah. Know, where, you know, the, the idea of the, of the folks on the Jeffersonian side of that debate was that we would have European-style inequality. Uh, it's in so in also like European-style
0: socialism. Yeah. I
1: <laughs>
3: <don't> <laughs> know, it's so funny. We're always defining ourselves against what the Europeans are doing. Although, of course, again, the great irony of saying that is that we had American style slavery. So, right, you know? right, <laughs> right, So it was a, you know, which, you know, there you go. Um, you know, my family, uh, I remember growing up, and my mother would say, your, your dad's people are Okies. You know, that wasn't a good word. Just no. FYI, the way my mother said it in <coughs> her mouth. I don't know, it just never sounded good.
1: I don't think for Texans it's still a it's good still word. Not good it's not a good word. Yeah. Yeah. But if
3: you're from Oklahoma, I have a chance
1: it's a, yeah. perfect, perfectly yeah. nice word. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, that whole period when we look at the the 1930s, I mean, that was a consequence of many things, including the mechanization of farming. Um, not only was environmental disaster and there were several things that were going all together there, you know, effects of World War One, but one of the big effects was that was part of a long-term trend of people being pushed off the land because there were more efficient ways to farm and it was very painful and very hard and, you know, listen to Woody Guthrie, you know. Um, So that's happened before, and and Greg mentioned the Luddites, you know, that was early 19th century. All the novels of Charles Dickens are all about, you know, from The Christmas Carol to Bleak House to David Copperfield, are all about what happens um, in these, you know, periods of real industrialization. I guess, I think that's why, I mean, to me it's always interesting to take that long history perspective, because you, you say, okay, well, yeah, that was really grim. But what were the long-term consequences? Some of the short-term consequences were terrible. Industrialization deepened American slavery. The cotton gin, which was right. a part of the you know, that whole trend towards mechanization of textile production, created a deeper commitment in the American South to the institution of slavery.
1: Right before the cotton gin, there was this belief that slavery was going to wither away because uh, it wasn't economical. And then yeah. the cotton gin made you know, gave cotton production this enormous uh, boost in terms of productivity. I mean, we're in historic downtown Bryan. This was a cotton town. This was a place where cotton farmers brought their cotton to market so they could put it on a train.
3: Right, and yeah. they were actually, and they were, and, and Britain, British industrialists funded the railway right. that runs through downtown Bryan. I think we heard it earlier on the podcast. You know, we had the, whoo Yeah, yeah, the yeah. I mean, that train goes back is, to the British is, demand it, it, for American cotton grown by American slave people who had been right. enslaved by, you know, American planters. And... So that's why industrialization, its always there are always bitter things about it. You know, there are unintended consequences. In fact, the law of unintended consequences is there are always unintended consequences. If they were intended, you wouldn't do it. So, you know, I think that we saw that before, and what we've also seen is that how we respond to it is everything. I mean, there is actually a recipe for success and a recipe for survival of each wave of industrialization.
1: But there's also a lot of fear, right? And, and you can see it in our politics today, right? And appeals to fear are extremely mobilizing in the political sphere.
3: Yeah, and it's so sad, Greg, too. I heard a wonderful talk recently at, at Hoover Institution where I hang out part of the time at Stanford by um, Admiral James Ellis. And he was saying, good leaders absorb fear.
0: Instead of stoke it.
3: Right. You think of a man, a, a leader in combat. George Washington's job was to absorb fear, to give Americans confidence that this was all going to come sunny side up. It might look bad right now, but it's all going to come sunny side up. So, you know, I do think that is a function of really good leadership. Unfortunately, we don't, we don't always get it.
0: So one of the things that um, I'm going to avoid the bait of talking about leaders that stoke fear, because it's too easy. Too easy. One of the things that uh, I've seen folks make arguments about how AI is different and, and one uh, proponent of, of this is another historian you've all uh, Noah Harari talks about how in um, previous technological revolutions part of what was going on was a was oppressing the worker and trying to keep them from getting too much power, keeping them from having unions, keeping them away from collective bargaining and that, that was a was a type of problem. But the, the thing that he, that he worries about um, is this idea that people have become useless and that they don't have, feel like they have a purpose because if these new jobs don't show up after their ta- jobs are automated, and particularly if you think about older workers that aren't used to having to retrain, that um, this is going to cause some real problems as people feel useless. And some uh, some kind of tentative evidence for this right is um, the rising suicide rate, particularly mm-hmm. among uh, 50 plus white men for example people that used to have a stronger place in the job in the labor market and maybe feel like they're not as important maybe they feel they're useless to use the term mm. and so then what they resort to is suicide and his point is that uh, people that feel useless respond to threats differently than those that feel oppressed mm. oppressed people fight back often they push back they try to get their rights people that feel like they play no role and are completely useless, turn a little bit more inward, and then you have a little more political instability in that mm-hmm. way, uh, not to mention maybe potentially raising, rising rates of suicide. So this this fear, whether it's warranted or or not, uh, I think is is an open question when it comes to technology. I don't want to go all the way into the Luddite camp, but there is, you know, when you see the advances in artificial intelligence specifically, in the pace of which, and the way the pace at which it's spreading, and spreading as an academic discipline, spreading in the private market, starting to spread in governance, it seems to be happening at a really quick pace. And so one thing that economists point out is, and Darren Smogu has a a new paper that works on this that came out last year, that there's a lag, right? And that part of the story is if automation is really, really, really fast, if these new technologies happen really, really quickly... Labor needs time to adjust. People need time to retrain. People need time to get in new industries. And so there is this concern that as technological evolution is continuing to increase exponentially, if the power, processing power of AI, its ability to learn, also continues to grow exponentially, that it will look a little different this time. Certainly not something ruled out. And if that's the case, then you do have very fast automation, which then makes it hard for labor to catch up and have... uh, have developed new industries. And so I do think there is a little bit of a concern here, given the pace of AI development, that despite with uh, the industrial, for example, with the industrial revolution, you needed more hardware than you need to deploy AI. AI is software, Mm -hmm. you still need some hardware, but the hardware you need to deploy AI is much cheaper relatively. And so there's this question of, with this technological revolution, will it have some of the same kind of bumps along the road to slow down the pace of automation that that we had in the past, and it's not at all clear, you know, to be a little bit more concerned about this. It's not all clear, uh, it's not all clear to me that this this pace of automation will be sustainable.
1: So, what's the role of government in all of this?
3: Well, talking to people at the Bush School of Government, you know, this is a very important question. I think the role of government is critical, and um, you know. I told you I was reading Hamilton's report on manufacturers, and what he was saying is that people are so traditional that even when things get really rough, they'll just slog along at poor wages. Even as jobs disappear, they'll just kind of keep eking it out. And oh, by the way, I feel like I'm reading about modern America mm-hmm. when I hear that. You know, just the baristas, all the baristas will just continue to take their meager wages and not have. You know, and and we have a problem in America partly with lack of mobility, people don't move around, they don't hmm. know where the jobs are, and so we're just kind of slogging We're, we're, we're less
1: mobile than we used to we're be.
3: much less mobile, there's much Geographically less… Geographically and by class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's, especially in this case, the geographical, because there right. can't be jobs places and people are like, oh, I think I'll just stay here. So Alexander Hamilton knew about this problem, and he said this is the role of government, to give people confidence, to make these entice people to do new things. Um, you know, to set up various kinds of incentives for people to move around. So I think it's always been really important. And um, you know, whether you call that the social safety net or something else, and of course, I mean, this does bring the question, we won't go there because you just told us we're not going to. But, but which is, you know, as a country, we need to work together. We have to pull together. This is really not about technology. This is about humans not doing what humans can do very well which is to cooperate with each other. We have that potential. If we fail to do that, it's not because of the robots.
1: I will just point out that this is the second podcast in a row in which Hamilton's first report to the Congress on manufacturers was referenced.
3: Didn't see that coming. I
1: referenced it in our last podcast with Raymond Robertson when we were talking about trade and people were asking about, well, what's the argument for protectionism? And I said, well, historically, there was an argument for protection. It was made by Alexander Hamilton, Alexander so Hamilton. so, so very good. We've got two in a row in which Hamilton's Report on Manufacturers was referenced.
3: Which normally puts people right to sleep. No, it it's so, exciting. No, so it's exciting. exciting. so exciting. Like yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. You know, so I wrote this novel on Hamilton, my little story about that is I went to my, um, my agent and my publisher several years ago, and I said, you know, I want to write a novel God, the sexiest man in the American Revolution, gotta Got to be Alexander Hamilton. And they said, we, would, we will never be able to sell a book on Alexander <laughs> Hamilton. It was so boring. Just go find yourself another topic. It was boring book? Oh, yeah. Was this
1: before or after oh, the Chernow no, volume?
3: No, before. It was before yeah, the Chernow volume? Gosh, yeah, it's, you know, around that. Around I, then. I wasn't yeah. paying
1: really much the, I mean, the Chernow volume was a huge bestseller. Yeah. I mean, that's where Lin Manuel Miranda got his idea absolutely, for the absolutely. for the By for the musical. They
3: weren't buying it from me until I started yeah. singing about.
1: It. Yeah, there I mean, you I mean, go. You may
3: remember that even Obama laughed at Lin Manuel Miranda when he first appeared at the White House, and Miranda, and Miranda said, "I'm going to talk about you know the man who I think embodies hip hop, mm. Alexander, Alexander Hamilton, Hamilton yeah. and the Obama's first out.
0: So. That's hilarious. <laughs> so, uh, just one comment on what role should government play? Yeah, yeah. Craig's reminding me that it is uh, at the 44-minute moment, uh, a mark. But just one thing, I think think there's two important pieces. One is how we can use these tools of AI to improve governance. And we need to be careful about how we do that because it's different than when private actors are doing it. Right. So we need to worry about accountability. We need to... Privacy concerns. Privacy discrimination. All of these things, when you start introducing these tools and the governance matter... However, there are lots and lots of opportunities that might cut down on either government errors or overall government performance if it's done intelligently and carefully. The second piece is thinking about the consequences of if automation is challenging and there is a, it uh, causes unemployment to go up, what should we do? And this is you know, different philosophies about what the role of government should be. Thinkers that I've read have two suggestions on this, which I'll just share and then we'll move to, to questions. Um, One is, which we've heard, is some type of uh, income insurance, whether that's expanding unemployment insurance, whether that's some universal basic income, some type of insurance for people who lose their jobs as a result of machines. The second um, uh, that is proposed by Kai-Fu Lee in in his recent book that compares the strategic approach to AI from U.S. and China Um, is this idea of subsidizing caring professions. And so the idea is that the tasks that computers and AI do poorly are like nurses taking care of the young, taking care of the elderly, basic helping professions. And so one way to mitigate the automation from AI is instead of subsidizing some of the things we're subsidizing now, maybe whichever you pick, whether it's whatever, farming, oil, oil, Different types of energy, construction, whatever. construction, right? But instead, we should subsidize these caring professions. But these are going to be something that people will always need to do for the foreseeable future because that human touch matters. And so, we need to make those types of jobs have real quality wages and quality of life so that more people will want to do that. Well, of course,
3: women who've worked in the home for many generations would think that this is a good argument to be made. And actually, that's one of the challenges here, by the way, is that so many of those occupations have been traditionally female occupations. Right. Um, I think, you know, you're talking about white men or you know middle class men and, you know, suicide rates and all that. I mean, part of the problem here is that. That there is there are is a gender imbalance in terms of which occupations may be automated, especially if you talk about things like truck driving, and right? Construction and oil rigs and mining and things. There's that some meant, common themes, right? Yeah. There's some common themes there. Whereas nursing and elder care and child, teachers, teachers and, teachers and child these care. are the things which are really you know. Do we care enough about those things? Do we really care enough? I hope so.
0: Thank you. All right. So the time is coming, and though we went a little bit long because this is what I do research on. So I got a little carried away with our guest today. I thought I
1: thought it was a podcast about you know what Lisa Cobbs is doing, not a podcast about <laughs> what about Justin a, Bullock a about was about Justin doing. Is doing. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, I've been waiting to talk about it. <laughs> Thank goodness. So uh, with that, we have a nice uh, crowd with us today. Uh, does anyone have a question they would like to ask of the panel? I promise to let the guests speak.
4: Thanks for coming. Um, I know we've talked about policy a little bit, but do you think
1: the first to kind of pass policy as far as artificial intelligence will be the federal
4: government? Or do you think it will take a kind of a a state approach where you have some states, maybe like a California that has uh, Silicon Valley being pro-AI versus other agrarian states being anti-AI?
0: So the question was, uh, as concerns about AI move forward, it becomes more... uh, uh, bigger player? Do we think that policy will take action more at the federal level or at the state or local level? Who will be leading
2: the charge?
3: Yeah, that's a hard question to answer. Um, Of course, so many of these things, especially because AI is all embracing, right? You can't can't say, well, my iPhone stops here, right? You know, these things go across state barriers and international barriers that I think it's going to be hard, especially with things like privacy regulations and stuff like that. Although there are differences between how the EU handles things like this and how the United States handles things like this. So, um, you know, I think certainly most of the policies that we see are at the really at the highest levels. But on the other on the other hand, you know, these can even just be private efforts. You know, how do we take care of people who who are displaced? I and mean, that's something that churches can get involved in, you know, and individuals. It doesn't always have to be a top down government approach, although certainly when it comes to taxing and Income support and stuff like that, you know, I think it's going to be a federal effort if it's going to happen.
1: No, but I I thought the interesting thing was that uh, that you added the international level. I mean, this might be an issue of international regulation, you know, through treaties and international organizations, which, of course, is the federal government in the United States case. But, you know, at a level above the federal level is uh, perhaps where some of this regulation is going to occur.
3: Well, and, and another area that the film actually delves into a lot, which we haven't talked about, is the consequences for education, um, because how do we get ready? I mean, how are we getting our kids ready? You know, uh, Thomas Friedman, who's in the film, he says, I think we're doing a really good job of educating people for jobs we needed 70 years ago. Um, so that's, by the way, a state question and a local question, schools. Mm. So those are, you know, that's a way in which lo- a lower levels of government, so to speak, have a big responsibility.
0: So, just to add to it, all levels are already playing a role in some way or another. So, you have international groups of scientists that are working to make sure that AI is is beneficial AI. Um, You have the federal government, the Obama administration did a big uh, report on AI and how it was affecting the economy and government. Uh, President uh, Trump in mid-February issued an executive order. Trying to increase and maintain the U.S.'s um, like dominance, although it's uh, you know waning a little bit, but the U.S.'s dominance in AI, and then a lot of the initiatives. When you hear things about, say, smart cities, for example, um, smart cities use a variety of tools, but some of the tools that they they do use in actually delivering services on the ground and improving them are versions of narrow AI. So you're already seeing uh, different groups kind of adapt it to their context, right? Local governments out providing services with it. Federal governments kind of providing resources and structure and something of a plan. You have international organizations like the World Economic Forum who are really talking about these. And then you have groups of kind of leading scientists that are really trying to frame the decision. They're trying to like they're trying to get policymakers to be a part of this. And they're really starting not all of them, but there's becoming a large community of folks within the AI community that are like, okay, can't just be engineers, and computer scientists, going away at the next problem. We have to think about what the societal uh, con- uh, societal impacts are. So lots of players are already really wrestling with this. All
2: right, so a lot of what you're talking about is is more broadly than cyber or AI. It's about technology in, in general. And one of the fears that people have is uh, that um, it isn't going to be government that drives this per se. It's going to be the private sector, and the profit motive, right? Nobody. I mean, Justin kind of alluded to this a little while ago. But one of the concerns that people have is that we'll do the things that people can make money at, not the things that are good for for people, good for society, uh, and the government will just be captured by the people who have the money. So how do we how do we deal with these issues? We I, I direct the Institute for Science, Technology, and Public Policy at the Bush School. We deal with these issues on everything we, we touch, right? We don't have any answers, but I'm asking you to provide me with some answers. So. Is that unfair? <laughs> well,
3: yeah, well, one of the experts who's in the film has lots of wonderful and interesting things to say as uh, an economist slash historian slash literature critic named Deirdre McCloskey, who talks about Adam Smith. You know, and and the often misunderstanding of Adam Smith, Mm -hmm. who advocated the idea that you know we need to let the market work, Mm -hmm. that the market, actually profit making is a good thing. Mm -hmm. That's actually how we incentivize people to do important new stuff. But as she points out, that. If you just take that as the only interpretation of Adam Smith, you're missing a lot, because he also talks about the role of government in watching out for the commonwealth. Mm-hmm. That um, that's why we have government. That's why we don't just have, you know, the private sector. That both have a really important role to play. So, will government be captured? That's the you know that's the that's always the big question. The sixty million dollars. What is the figure nowadays? Keeps going on. Well, I'm old,
1: so I I just, you know, I just I just go back billion. to the sixty-four thousand dollar question <laughs> oh, yeah. and let let people Google it. You right. know,
3: well, thank you, Greg. But yeah. uh, it's the big question, and that's something. And that's the you know that's the cool thing about history is that you go, wow, well, people were like dealing this this in Roman times, and mm-hmm. and then they were dealing with it during you know the American Civil War, and you know it's that's what keeps life exciting, and also that's what makes us
0: human. Mm-hmm. Uh, One of the things that I've seen and it doesn't actually stop the capture problem, but as I was mentioning a minute ago, within the AI, at least the AI specific community, there's they're starting to think more carefully about how they about transparency, right? There's this norm in the artificial intelligence and in science in general to be completely transparent and open with the things that you learn. So they they're kind of reflecting on is it good that we just make this available to anyone, including potentially corporations? The other piece that I think could be helpful is the the piece that I the argument that I've read that had some legs to me on this is thinking about how we navigated nuclear uh, the the ability to split the atom in nuclear bombs and in this in this realm scientists themselves played a large role in going to the general public and pleading for uh, intelligent use of uh, uh, of these tools. And so I think scientists and uh, academics like us can play, you know, maybe not much of a role compared to money, but at least some role in thinking about what the professional norms are around developing these tools. You know, a lot of uh, some artificial intelligence uh, uh, scholars that work with uh, with DARPA, for example, or that have worked with the Google, have um, have left in protest of the different types of projects that Google had with the U.S. government. And so they're. There are some ways to at least send signals up that the general public doesn't approve of these and that the experts doing the research have a a general direction they want this to go. But it seems pretty clear to me that, uh, at least in terms of relative power, that these technological corporations are certainly rivaling state governments uh, in in the amount of resources and power they have already. And I think it's already a question of how much of the federal government have they already captured just through lobbying uh, efforts and the amount of resources. So um, hopefully, you know, um, Larry Page and Mark Zuckerberg are friendly people at the door, and Jeff Bezos.
4: <laughs> yes. Um, so I I have wanted to put, ask a question about that science and technology policy, on that perspective. So so far. Industrial revolution has been working as a better, con- in constructive ways. Okay. Even though we actually worried about losing jobs for the first time, but we you have made more chances using those technologies. So basically, I, I, I think that industrial industrial revolution have been working as more in constructive and positive ways, in total perspective. But artificial intelligence, I, I'm I'm thinking that basically so far. Science and technology and industrial revolution has been just tools of human. But in my understanding, artificial intelligence is intelligence. And it's basically not just programming, but it's about learning. So it can't learn it by itself. It means that it has a function of brain in terms of human, not just body as a tool. So I think that um, artificial intelligence could be somewhat differentiated from conventional technologies so I have been wondering if we can induce the future of the future world of AI differentiating from previous industrial revolution or at least uh, I wanted I really wanted to ask that some historian about this perspective like, if we can measure some serious differences or no differences in between each industrial revolution. So I'm basically wondering if we can induce the future of AI in historical perspective.
0: So the general question, uh, as I understood it, was is AI different, or in what ways might it be different from previous technological revolutions? And if so, what does that say about its ability and how it might impact us?
3: Yeah, and that's a really good question. I mean, you might be saying, is it additive or is it transformative, right? Is it just like you know a new form of like we didn't used to have telephones and now we have telephones. Isn't that cool? Um, and certainly, some people worry that that is, and that's what we often that's what's called singularity, the idea that it will then become, um, and Justin was talking about this too, sort of general intelligence, and then it will take over and that our lives will never be the same. And, and that's certainly um, what we see portrayed in film all the time. In fact, one of the fun things about making this film is we got to use all these great, you know, The Matrix and, you know, uh, the Terminator, yes, The Terminator, and but also fun things like um, Mike Myers' uh, Austin Powers. And, I mean, those, that mean that the robots are coming is in so many things. Um, and in a way, I don't have the answer, you know, come, come see the film. Um, but it's also, nobody has the answer. Right. Nobody can know the future. The best predictor of the future is the past. Um, past waves of technology we have managed to harness, uh, and Justin just mentioned nuclear power, which is very frightening, and for very good reasons, because it's a very frightening thing. Um, One of the um, clips we have in the film is uh, the the terrible occasion on which Thomas Edison electrocuted an elephant. A very healthy, happy, pretty elephant, live elephant, but to show electricity can be really bad. So that fear, um, but it can also be made safe enough that a child can turn on the light and be fine. So I I hear what you're saying and I, I think it's a very important question. Scientists say, Andrew Ng, who is probably the world expert on this subject, I asked him this very question, a very, very nice man, very sincere, and I don't think he has any reason to try and snow me on it. Um, he said, we don't know that maybe that could happen, but it's, right now it's like worrying about overpopulation on Mars, okay? And what that fear does is it takes our eyes off the things we know are problems. We have a lot of problems to solve that if we could stop worrying for just a few minutes about Westworld robots, you know, we could take care of the things that we do know are going to be a big problem for our population if we don't get a handle on them. Things like education, things like a safety net, things like retraining of older workers. We have got to start talking about those things.
0: And I, I would just add that uh, uh, scholars take different views of this, um, which Lisa mentioned. and. There's another whole group that uh, centered around existential risk, which um, Nick Bostrom, Elijah Yudkowsky um, uh, are the two that immediately come to mind. That are really worried about what they call uh, value alignment and control of uh, general AI. And they would they would make the argument that this is a is the one of the hardest problems we can picture something that has more intelligence than us, how we can make sure that it uh, likes us, and we remain controlling it, remain in control of it. It is the question. So there is this other end of the spectrum on some of these uh, AI scholars and ones that worry about uh, AI and policy. Uh, there's this one one side of it that says, let's, let's focus on these issues in front of us. They're really important, as uh, as Lisa mentions. The other side would say, yeah, those are really important, but if we don't get this big picture question right of making sure that AI's goals are aligned with us, we lose. And so maybe we should be spending time thinking about that. Well, but Stephen you Hawking said, mm-hmm. yeah,
3: this could spell the end of the human race. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Elon Musk is building a, <laughs> a you know, um, you know. Space exploring type equipment so that he can go to Mars. Now uh-huh. I don't know going to the rest of us <laughs> sort of down here, here on Earth, but um, you know he's also sort of said that. Yeah. You know, get will, ready.
1: Will there be any place like downtown on on Mars? Uh,
0: no, there yeah, won't.
3: Not historic, Brian.
1: Yeah.
0: But it seems like it's that time for us to go enjoy downtown Uncorked. I think. I
1: think yeah. so, Brian.
0: So thank you so much for the audience. Thanks for your questions. Uh, thanks for the listeners and. Uh, most importantly, thank you, uh, Professor Elizabeth Cobbs, for joining us for this conversation. And, le-
1: and let's let's plump the, the, the uh, premiere again. It's April 15th at the Presidential Conference Center uh, on the Texas m campus, out on West Campus by the Presidential Library, and it starts at 6 p.m.,
3: and it's a 56-minute film followed by a fascinating conversation with people like Justin Bullock and Tracy Hammond and Jonathan Coopersmith. So it'll be a good time.
0: Yep. Hope to see you there. Thank you so much for listening.